folks, welcome to episode number 42 of the Machine Repeat Podcast. I know this is a very busy time of year as we move into the holiday season. I appreciate you giving us some time, whether you're in the tractor cab, in the pickup out on the road. Um, I guess I will really listen to podcasts. We're just appreciative of your support. And uh, I think we got a really fun show today. Um, I'll get to our special guest, who I know you all know very well. Uh, that'll be coming up in just a minute. I do need to touch on the current market. Just absolutely incredible, folks. I've never seen anything like this. If you follow me on social media or AgriTalk Radio, you know <laughs> it, it's actually hard to report because values are changing by the day. I, I, frankly, I knew this was going to happen. This is why about Halloween, I came out and said, folks, if you you know, if you do have anything for sale, there just frankly will never be a better time to sell because the year-end tax buyers have just slammed into an already heated market with the supply chain issues, with farm equipment dealers struggling with low levels of inventory. Uh, and this pent-up year-end tax buying is just incredible. Um, just give you a few examples. Now, as I record this, um, it is December 8th. Um, I just spoke today at the Iowa Farm Bureau annual meeting the second day, and I was talking with the folks there, and it's just incredible. Now, today, December 8th, our great friends at Sullivan Auctioneers, who host our uh, sponsor our Machinery PTV show, uh, they had an online farm retirement auction in, I think it was Malcolm, Iowa. Highest auction price I've ever seen on a sprayer. They had a uh, 2021 John Deere R4038, 149 hours. So obviously you think that's going to be a hot item, but it brought $387,000 hard cash. And for perspective, the previous highest auction price ever on any sprayer, which was earlier this year, actually back on St. Patty's Day, was three thirty-five. dollars So you're, you're talking about a jump of $52,000. And that's the kind of stuff I've been seeing all over the place. Now, again, it's December 8th as I'm recording this. Tomorrow, December 9th, Sullivan has a sale uh, closing, an online auction in Charleston, Illinois. I think the last name is Lidikin, um, but I tell you what, it's just incredible. One day out, this auction already has the highest priced tractor, combine, and planter that I've ever seen. And again, the bidding action doesn't usually really crank until, you know, it goes the last hour or two, whatever, extended bidding. But they've got a 2019 John Deere 9620 RX. It's already at 462. They've got a 2021 John Deere S780 Combine. And of course, warranty, 336 engine hours. That's at 434. And the planter is a 2021 John Deere 1775 NT, 24030-inch CCS, uh, 2,521 acres on it. That's already sitting at 297. Now, of course, the kicker there is you might think to yourself, well, that's crazy. Well, good luck. You can't get a new planter. You can't. You cannot buy one. So here's one, a 2021 model. On the auction market, it's up for sale, and you can see what's happening now. In no way is this isolated. In fact, as I was getting ready to come down to Des Moines to speak at the Iowa Farm Bureau Convention, I mean, we're getting these reports. They're just incredible, and I hope you're following along on our Machine Repeat uh, blog and on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram. But just walk back a little bit to uh, 
Monday night. Shout out to uh, great folks at Froggett Auction and Real Estate up by right where, near where I grew up, Benson, Minnesota. They had, uh, I think it was an online farm auction. It was in the evening. It was December 6th for Keith and Marlis. Boy, I hope I pronounced their last name right. Vestero. Uh, and let me just rattle off some of these prices. They had a 2008 John Deere 8130, 1,798 hours on it, brought 143, highest auction price on 8130 in, eight in over eight and a half years, third highest price ever. Same sale at a 2014 John Deere 8235R with 1,684 hours, went for 178. So it's not just the pre-def, pre-tier four stuff. Nope. I mean, it's it's anything and everything these days if it's good shape. So again, that brought that 8235R 14 model one for 178, second highest auction price ever on an 8235R, uh, and four of the five highest auction prices ever on an 8235R. Guess what? All from 2021. Um, so that was Monday night. Then last night, after I talked to the good folks here at the Civic Arena, downtown Des Moines, I got back to the uh, hotel here, and I I was watching all day. Um, our friends at the Steffes Group had a sale yesterday, so it was December 7th. You maybe saw the preview video I did. It was a retirement auction for Clinton Frana. And Clinton, wow, did he have nice stuff. I knew there would be records here, and... Uh, I mean, just a few examples. Clinton had a 2008 John Deere 9,45 hours on it. That brought 194. Now, when I was speaking today, because I can't hardly keep up with this stuff, but I had a slide in my PowerPoint that showed a recent 8330 in Indiana that brought 188, and that was like, oh my gosh, 188. Well, you know, Stephas sold this one yesterday for 194. That's the second highest auction price ever on 8330. The only higher one, and I, I noted this in a blog I posted last night. Uh, the only one higher was back on June 29th of 2013 in Lenox, Iowa. It was actually the very first auction we filmed for our for our own machinery PTV show, season one on RFD, and. Uh, that was a 2008 model. Only had 277 hours on it. Went for 210. That's the only 8330 I've ever seen sold higher. That 188 from Brookston, Indiana. That was another Sullivan sale. That was on November 16th. That's the third highest. So there you go. You've got the second and third highest John Deere 8330s ever in the last couple of weeks. Now on the sale yesterday again that Steffes had in Calmer, Iowa. Clinton Frana had a 2010 John Deere 8225R with 990 hours, so pre-def, pre-tier four. That went for 170, highest auction price in eight years, tied for the second highest price ever. He set a record on his 2014 John Deere 6150R with 238 hours on a loader. That brought 157. Uh, and by the way, record price by 26,000 bucks. So again, that was yesterday. And if you, again, if you're following the breadcrumb trail, I mean, if you saw what happened last Saturday, which was December 4th, unbelievable. So if you, you hop out to uh, Payne, Ohio, uh, my good friends at Schrader Real Estate and Auction had a sale for John and Patty Young, their retirement auction. How about a 1993 John Deere 4960 with 4,056 hours for 97,000 bucks? You know, again, I hope you caught the blog I posted the day of the sale. That is the third highest auction price ever on a 4960, the highest since February 6th of 2013. 
So almost nine years. Uh, now, again, that wasn't the only thing on that sale. They had a 79, 4440, 7,199 hours, brought 35K, 7,200 hours. They had a 76, 4430 with 7,299 hours. That went for 26. <laughs> if you like old combines, they had a 98 John Deere 9510, 2,738 engine hours. That brought 51K, third highest auction price, past five years. And you can imagine how hot used pickups are. Well, this sale Saturday in Payne, Ohio, they had a 2005 Ram 2500 extended cab, 88,484 miles, one owner, Cummins Diesel, 37K. That thing's almost, what, 17 years old. Uh, and they had an no-till drill, a John Deere 750 20-foot, 32K. So again... This is that tidal wave I, I said was coming uh, November and December with the year-end tax buyers, and it's frankly, it's going to continue through the end of the, this month. I'm being asked a lot now, machinery people, asked, frankly, the last, the last two days here in Des Moines by the Farm Bureau folks, members, uh, machinery Pete, what, you know, when's the other shoe going to drop? When is this, when's it going to cool off? Well, I think we might take a breath when the calendar flips, to reassess, first two weeks of January, you know, people are busy, you know, kind of reassessing, uh, coming off our holiday parties and such. But I don't think it's going to be a very long breath because structurally, if you look, this, this supply chain situation is not going to be settled in a month. In two, it's just going to take a while. And also the situation on dealer use lots is tight. And that's the thing I haven't seen in 32 years. So those two factors together... Um, you know, market's going to be uh, very strong. So uh, now let's pivot and let's go and talk about our guest this week. It's John Phipps, the former host of U.S. Farm Report, good friend of mine. Uh, John was host of U.S. Farm Report from 2005 to 2014. Of course, you still read his John Phipps column and John's World uh, videos on agweb.com and Farm Journal Magazine, top producer. Uh, you see him on U.S. Farm Report doing commentary on Ag Day. John is a super sharp guy, and I just like talking to him. So this conversation, I think you're going to enjoy this, folks. It's very wide-ranging. We talk about China. We talk about the supply chain issue. We talk about struggles in rural America right now with, uh, you know, community and how we're kind of growing apart and what, if anything, can we do about it? Um, and we also talk about engineering. I, I sort of forgot that John was a chemical engineer at uh, Rose Hullman Institute of Technology, graduated back in 1970. Um, you maybe heard me talk, uh, our youngest daughter, Josie, she was a chemical engineer through Purdue in 2015. So I've just been fascinated by the field of engineering and and really, it's kind of on a mission to, to uh, you know, talk about it with people in the field so that people who aren't in the field and have talented kids that like math and science back down the chain, even if you're grandkids, listen to this. Listen to John Phipps talk about what the engineering mindset. It's fascinating stuff. So let's bring in my friend John Phipps right now. Well, folks, I want to welcome our guest on the podcast today, someone you all know and love for his service to agriculture for many years, John Phipps. Uh, John, how are you doing today? 
uh, great. You know, sun's out and I'm healthy. And so those, you know, that's all it takes to make a good day anymore. Yeah, I hear you now. John, your farm, is it Chrisman, Illinois? Well, yeah, and technically speaking, after this year, it's Aaron's farm, my son, and I'm free labor. But the odd thing <laughs> is, my life won't change a bit. I'll still be doing the same stuff at the same okay. time, but it, it's all his worry. It is interesting because of that change. I don't pay attention to the markets near as much as I used to. And, you know, when we were trading machinery, I swear I appreciated uh, getting in touch with you on different things because uh, I couldn't figure out what was going on because I, I hadn't bought a machine in 10 years right. and hadn't missed it either. Right. Uh, since then, I've had a whole bunch of other guys that I've either written about it or talked about it on U.S. Farm Report uh, just hinted around that, you know, we just traded off the last machine I had bought right. on this farm. And it was, there was kind of an emotional thing there. I, I was, you know, it's like your old dog dying or something. Yeah. I don't know uh, what it was, but and I, I'll bet you run into that too I, with uh, I, guys who have just had their, their auction and especially those that don't have a, a successor in the family. Right. That would, that would be kind of a, Lumping your throat thing. Yeah, it took me uh, 32 years now I've been at this. And about um, 2007, 8, 9 is when I started to, you know, I was getting out more, but starting to connect that there was something deeper here beyond just like, hey, your you're John Deere 4960 brought X. It was like, the, just like you described, the people's connection to it. Even the farmers who would say, yeah, it's just an asset. When I would stick around and talk to them, it, you could tell it, it wasn't just an asset. It gets tied up in uh, our ourselves, I guess. It's it's an interesting itch to try and scratch as a reporter out there. It, tools are how we multiply our ability to affect the world. There you go. And believe it or not, when I was in college, way back in the dark time, uh, we're using slide rules. And guys got passionate about whether you uh, use a Deskin microglide or uh one of the other types and we used to have big arguments about and those were just the tools that we used right. and uh, especially when you have a machine that really you know really has worked well for you for a long time right. it's right. it is like like a pet and you're coming down in a hard harvest and you're like oh, like if for instance for a combine which is the one I, what I talked about on the show uh, the machine we had a, a John Deere I can't remember whether it's ninety six seventy or ninety seven sixty. Yep. Who, who thought of that idea? Let's <laughs> you know mess around with the numbers exactly. like that. But at any rate, it's thirteen years old, and that sucker has just mowed through the, the corn and yep. beans. And other than a couple of small things, it's been a it's been a good old machine. So you know they're they're coming to pick it up soon, and okay. I I'm hoping that we'll be so excited about the new one, we'll we'll probably probably turn around and not watch it go down the lane. Uh, but uh, it, you do because, uh, in a way, we're kind of uh, all agricultural engineers. We right. we fix things, we make things better, we make things work. And uh, when you have a tool that is reliable, uh, I have a favorite chisel here in the wood wood shop, okay. and I've got oh, I don't know three or four sets, and I always reach for this same one, and I keep it sharp. And I've got a favorite hammer, and right. that's. Uh, we're tool users, and I think this goes back to the dawn of time when we were 
pounding rocks together that you know flint nappers probably had a their favorite <laughs> elk bone to nap the flint with oh uh, i i think you've identified something primal john a man and machine man and tool for sure yeah on the topic of tools now uh i and i i've admit i forgot this about your background john um but you have an engineering background and i'll set you up for that i to talk about that i i i did not have any exposure to engineering in my life my dad was a farm equipment dealer but as our youngest our two daughters who are 30 and 28 now they were both into math and uh, science in high school oldest daughter is a math teacher uh youngest daughter is a chemical engineer and i tell you I was fascinated by this field. She was looking at colleges. She wound up going to Purdue, but you graduated. You have a BS, a chemical engineering degree um, from uh, Rose College. Or is it Rose Holman now? Institute of Technology? Rose Holman, right. Rose okay. Holman Institute in Terre Haute. Okay. And it's, it's just a small, there uh, are 2,000 uh, students, but it's all STEM, okay. uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. Okay. And that's all they do. It, it used to be all male when I was there. How how boys that age, I mean, young men that age, with their hormones raging, actually are in the classroom with women. I don't know how that works at all because, you know, it, at any rate, it's just kind of unthinkable. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it was all male, and now we're trying, okay, it's up to about uh, 27, 28%, which is the highest uh, uh, for STEM schools uh, in the United States. But for women, I, yeah. I, I got the degree in chemical engineering, then spent five years as a nuclear engineer. I got trained for a year in the Navy. Okay. And then uh, that's back when they drafted people. You, you, right. You're too young to remember <laughs> having an unlucky ping pong ball. That, that's right. one of the great memories of my life. We're at the fraternity house, and they're pulling ping pong balls wow. out that determine your future. I mean, holy mackerel. Yeah. What, that was insane. What year so, was that, John? What year was I'm that? sorry. What year was that when the ping pong ball hit for you? Uh, 70. Class of 70, we were the first ones. I, and okay. I think the draft was like in April or in, uh, no, it was in December of 69. Okay. And we graduated in 70. And I, I had a fraternity brother who was number one. Oh, I'm wow. My number was 83, but okay. they picked it in April. So okay. I, I knew I was, uh, I, I knew I was going to get drafted. That's all there was to it. Now, wow. three or four companies, one of them, uh, one of them, I had offered to to make napalm. I'm not making this mm, up. Wow. Up in Midland, Michigan, for Dow, or I think that's who yep. is up there. Yep. And uh, it was a it was a big deal, or it was a lucrative offer because they were having trouble recruiting people to do that. Sure. And I'm glad, but I dodged the draft by enlisting. Okay. which turned out to be uh, uh, one of the better decisions I've made. Uh, the Navy had, a, had, it still has, I think, what they call a nuclear power officer candidate. So I went through officer candidate school got, and got my, I was an ensign, I was an officer, and then spent a year on top of that in nuclear power school and the training, and then uh, four years on uh, USSC horse out of Charleston. Okay. And between those two things, the basic education in engineering and then the applied uh, application and the discipline because nuclear power is a non-forgiving technology yeah. you don't if, if the manual says this you do that and aaron my son who is a mining engineer mm. uh went through the same thing because we think osha is tough imsha is like osha on steroids mm. and so that's the mine mining 
Safety and Health Administration, okay. and they'll shut you down. I mean, for anything, but think about it. You got a huge machines, big rocks, and explosives right. on this site. You and so his, we have a safety ethic on this farm that his is much higher than mine, and he's prevented me from doing some really stupid stuff. Mm. And I, uh, and it has to do with his training. And he said, no, you put a harness on when you go up on top, or. Uh, we get a man left or something. You could, sure. That's the big thing, uh, and and also how you work on machinery and everything and and maintenance. So between the two of us, uh, I think it was a, we we had to Aaron had to learn the ag part, the agronomy part. Okay. But on the other hand, that's what we talk about in the magazine all the time. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but the engineering part, uh, when he looks at you know he's looked at the huge loaders and tractors and. Uh, conveyor belts and rock crushers and everything so yeah. that stuff translates pretty well okay and so i appreciate this chance just to give you a huge commercial uh if you want to be an ag consider going engineering the, the ag part the runway part the seed stuff a it changes all the time anyway and, and there are so many other ways to learn that okay. you can't learn calculus after you've yeah. uh, gone to ag school very easily well, see, this is it's fascinating. You set it up perfectly, John, because, again, as, as our daughters were looking at, at engineering, and I, as a father, I didn't have exposure to it. I just, it, it was ambiguous to me what an engineering, what an engineer does. Oh, you does. thought we were nerds. Well, yes, hey. You just thought we were guys <laughs> that we had a slide rule attached <laughs> to our belt, and it's true. We did. Well, I you, actually still have my slide rule. I and it's it. up on my wall board saying, in case of emergency, well, I don't care there's not a battery on the place and the lights are out, I can still do triple integrals. Well, let me bounce something off you. You tell me if this is a fair assessment, John, but our youngest daughter graduated in 11. We're coming off the Great Recession. So on the one hand, as a father, I was, you know, trying to support our daughters, you know, what they're interested in. You can't pound a round peg into a square hole, but they were into science and math. And what I learned from my IBM engineering buddies where I live in Rochester was, that an engineering degree has a many paths forward. And I was I was blown away by this. Our, our daughter Josie got a, a chemical engineering degree from Purdue, but that opens up med school, law school, patent law, right. business. Yep. What was the same true in, back in your day when you were coming through? Yeah, because really the first two years, you don't do anything in your major. You're just pounding your way through Calc 1 through Calc 3, uh, differential equations. You're going through physics 1 through 4 or whatever. Yep. And God help me, organic chemistry, which <laughs> I, as nearly as I can tell, all my both of my sons are engineers. Both of us just got out organic, or all of us, three of us, got out of organic chemistry by the skin of our teeth. Uh-huh. It was just a miracle. We're, we're somehow allergic or immune to it somewhere along the line. <laughs> but that's all you do the first two years. And the kicker of it is, then you get into your major and you do stuff like plant design and material flow and all this stuff, that uh, the piping and the plumbing types thing. Yep. But what those two years means that people who uh, who are liberal arts gra- or business graduates even mm-hmm. do not have uh, right now, for instance, they struggle sometimes with both statistics and probability mm-hmm. and data. It's all about data. And at least uh, the background I've had in math and that the, they're teaching at, at STEM schools, yep. why uh, 
that allows them to head into all kinds of business because everybody's going to have to be able to take a look at data, arrange it on a spreadsheet, reach some conclusions, and calculate some probabilities. And, yep. and it doesn't matter what kind of degree they've got. They'll either work for somebody who can do that or hire somebody that can do that. But that's going to be an essential part of just about every kind of of uh, profession. And I, I think farmers are the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking at t- tons of data rolling in. You can either send it off to somebody and trust that they'll uh, give you valid conclusions back, but they'll also try to sell you something at the same time. Mm-hmm. Or you can have the ability to look at data and reach some conclusions specific to your own farm. And yep. it really doesn't take that much effort, but uh, it, it, Aaron and Jack and I were all, uh, that stuff we'd already picked up, and so you could pile on top of it sure. pretty easily. Sure. Yeah, I was, uh, as Josie went through Purdue there and came out the other side, you know, and I could you could see and feel the demand for these students, these graduates with these engineering degrees, and it's, I think it's only getting more strong, but it almost seemed to me like, uh, organizations were were valuing the mindset of problem solving, uh, which, like you say, I mean that pretty much describes successful farmers, I guess, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, well, the other thing too is uh, engineering schools are not notorious party schools, <laughs> and you know it's we, we were nerds. Let's just face <laughs> it. I, I had a flat top until I was a junior or something like that. It, <laughs> it was. I look at those pictures and cringe, but. On the other hand, that's all we did. We were we were kind of focused on that, and so there's plenty of time later to yeah. to, to party, and so I, I think that's what employers are looking for is you know they can learn the other part, but if they come in here and we don't have to spend a year getting up up to speed on on uh, how the plant works and and what can go wrong and that sort of thing, why? You know, we don't care whether their uh, what their fraternity or, or, right. or their social life was like. Right. You you've proven that you can you can run the gauntlet, so to speak. I remember when our yeah. daughter she would she'd call me and it was midterms of her thermodynamics class, and you know, uh, as a father, I have no game to offer to help. The only analogy I came up with, I said, "Honey, you're in a blender full of razor blades. If you when you I said <laughs> when you come out the other side." There is nothing you can't do. There won't be any problem you can't tackle. Was that was that a fair assessment? Well, no, I think you're right. Uh, I think the, the you get a mindset that after you've gotten through uh, the last differential equations course, and you just your brain hurts. Then it dawns on you, okay. What else you got? Right. You know, let's, uh, you know, what, what you've got that uh, that's tougher. Yeah. And what we found out in, back in the day, uh, but the, they're doing this a lot earlier. They're, you're still getting that, that kind of stuff, but you're utilizing computers to yeah. get to the slide rule type stuff. And they're also integrating that with the entrepreneurial spirit. How can you make money out of it? Right. And they, they have laboratories and Everything, everything is done on a laptop, and so you're, they're able to constantly assess you and, and help you in areas that you need. And that's why when you come out, you're imminently employable, and it's, or you're also malleable. Right. You're just, uh, you know, a company, a big company can hire you and say, you know, we can stick in three, four different places. And also, and, and what that does too is to you 
spend some time and in the, in the plant and just spend some time with the guys in marketing, teaching them the kind of stuff. This is a good way to generate really useful executives. Right. Uh, so if, if you look at a lot of CEOs, uh, somewhere back along the way, they spent some time uh, in what looks like engineering, either had yes. an engineering degree or went on a, a big path. Uh, you talk about medical school, but a lot of them are getting MBAs. Uh, right. And it was back in the day, it was or back for my sons, finance was a big deal. Uh, right now, it's logistics. Yeah. If you that if you've got, I didn't even know they had a master's in logistics, hmm. but that's what uh, the the name schools are turning out. Those are the guys coming out with 250k salaries. Right. Well, uh, and let me go back and fill in the blanks here, John. Your your school, the engineering school, Rose Holman in Terre Haute, Rose Holman Institute of Technology. Um, that again, you know, what's the website? I suppose people can just Google it. Rose Holman, the, just, the school. Yeah, you'll Google it. You'll get right there. Okay, very cool. And I did notice that you had a minor in economics. So, John, I think yeah. you were you were just decades ahead of your time combining real world economics with that engineering mindset. So, what what made you want to get the economics minor? A, a guy named Dr. John P. Ying. He was just. Every now and then you run across a great teacher, yeah. and I had two, Theodore Sicano in physical chemistry, the kind that you came out of there, I don't care what he lectured on, you came out of there going, wow, yeah. and you, you, his test, I enjoyed his test because you end up learning things on the test. It wasn't just regurgitating, yeah. but John Yang uh, taught economics, and uh, I just tried it just for giggles, and then went ahead, and if I gotten through linear algebra, I could have gotten two degrees, but uh, economics allows me to kind of stay abreast of what's happening. I, for instance, I wrote about modern monetary theory, which makes your head explode <laughs> if you're a classical economist, but it is, I'm able to read um, economist logs or, or writings like Noah Smith or yeah. Tyler Cowen or, or whoever, and kind of figure out what they're saying. This helps when I try to figure out what world will we be farming in. Right. And it doesn't stop, oddly enough, at our border lying on our field. Right. And we are, we're finding out now in the last 10, 15 years, we're really, really affected by economics we knew nothing about right. and weren't, weren't something obvious to us because it's overseas or uh, in a different business right. altogether. Well, John, I, before I forget, I just need to thank you for the, the way you communicated with the farm audience all these years and tackling different topics and bringing your unique uh, wide range view on it. It helps us process the world we're navigating. So thank you for doing that. Uh, now, well, you, uh, thank you, Greg. You read that just the way I wrote it. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, well, if folks know me, they know that's not true because I am not prepared. Nope. I just wink. I, I know. Uh, now, I do want to talk about a column you wrote back a couple months ago, John. I, I found fascinating, and I think you hit the nail right on the head. It's it's kind of a tough slash sad, but maybe an opportunistic topic. Uh, I think the title was uh, Delaminating Communities, and you were kind of addressing the the famous book Bowling Alone, uh, which I believe was that yeah. Put Putnam, Robert Putnam. Yeah, um, Robert Putnam. Uh, but yeah, can you book. 
I'll just turn you loose. You tell, you know, just walk us through that. What, what made you think that that was what you wanted to talk about and, and where we're at right now with our culture? Well, physically, it's where I am. And we're in, you know, rural Illinois, which doesn't seem so bad, but we're still, we're 25 miles from the nearest Walmart and 60 miles from any kind of serious shopping. Although that, I, I used to use that when I was talking to farmers, but that doesn't matter anymore because it all, we get it all from Amazon. Amazon. But we got to looking around that, uh, people who were like us, that we could socialize with, who liked the same things that we did. And we realized that layer has been getting thinner and thinner. We've talked, I have, there are four couples in our group uh, that, uh, you know, different professions uh, who have been at a dinner club for 42 years. Mm, And so, uh, but we were, my son is trying to start one up because they always admired or always thought it was cool what we did. And, the problem is, and I've noticed, uh, I don't know whether it's Sarah, but one of our writers has been talking about peer groups. Yep. And they talk about how you may have to get somebody from another state. And partly it's because you don't want people that, that close, yep. but also because you don't, there are other 7,000 acre farmers that you can really identify with and without being uncomfortable. Right. It's not that there's, and there used to be, these layers of or layers would mix uh, at oh. basketball games or church was a big one church. at Lions Club. Uh, you name it, all kinds of organizations, and that's one of the things that Putnam talks about is he's watched the decline of, of all those organizations, fraternity or you know fraternal organizations uh, and clubs. They they were how. The bankers uh, talked to the guys, the hired men, right. because they all were in Masons. Or, and and that, that's a one that I, mm-hmm. I think is a, is a good example. But uh, what we're losing, those things that glue us together. Right. And uh, the other tricky thing is that uh, farmers, if you're a successful farmer now, you're probably look around – five square mile area and other than the other successful farmers mm-hmm. it, there really isn't uh, an income uh, strata that's quite close to you right. especially if you're you know four or five thousand acres right. and you know it, it, it's awkward for other people who are working a job it, it the other <laughs> one other thing that's happening uh, are, are called uh uh, associative mating. Hmm. Who do you want your kids to marry? Right. And so they go off to college and they marry somebody like that right. who really doesn't fit in coming back to the farm. They, hmm. It used to be a hard thing anyway. And so it, it's, uh, we're, we're falling apart. Right. Uh, it, the biggest driver is the fact that one, our population rate continues to just plummet right and uh so the small towns cannot support retail and amazon killed them anyway there's no car dealerships or anything like that and also this is getting weirder and weirder but the fertility rate yeah so there are no babies right and without that you don't have uh kindergarten programs that you go to and you get to know the kids are uh, uh, because you know you 
Mm-hmm. There just aren't that many of them. Right. Aaron or Jack, my grandson, uh, is in a, a high school, same one that I, Aaron and I went to, okay. and it's down to about 80 uh, in the whole high school. And mm. they only have a varsity basketball team because they didn't have enough for JV, and I think only have eight guys. What was your class uh, size back in the late 60s, John? Roughly. Uh, well, I graduated in a class of 11. 11, okay. But yeah, everybody, all the guys play basketball. That's just right. that's just the way it was. Right. So, but it was a it was a tiny school too. Okay. It was about about the same size as okay. it is now, and so the school doesn't act like uh, the place where you're up and on bleachers and the guy next to you and and you're linked because your kids uh, play together and they like each other. And uh, so, without uh, the children that form the links between people who would other not, otherwise not meet. You know, I, I was yeah. a little league coach and got to know, right. uh, boy, boy, howdy, did I get to know the parents. <laughs> but uh, yeah. it, but nonetheless, and, and those have kind of carried on. Right. But the problem now is small towns have either become residential communities for places that have decent paying jobs, or else you have uh, some uh, fairly low income people mm-hmm. uh, living uh, and old people who are living where it's very cheap to live. Housing is right. ludicrously cheap compared mm-hmm. to, well, anywhere. And so it's tough to make yeah. a community when uh, your closest friends and the people you can talk to, and this has happened to be uh, one in Champaign County, 60 miles away, another one 80 miles away. These are guys that I can sit down and talk anything with right. and, and not have to worry. And, that's not a, a community layer. That's something right. else. And right. so we don't know how our communities are going to work. We, we, we can watch them uh, dissolve. And well, but it, for far, farmers, they have to decide, how am I going to create uh, right. my own personal uh, community and, and how will I socialize? Right. And uh, generally, it's with other farmers, which is kind of a shame because you get that one-sided view of the world. Yeah. No, I, I again, I everything you're saying, John, resonates. And when I read your piece, it, it just reminded me of my wife and I have lived in Rochester for 32 years, Lutheran Church here she grew up in. And just to watch it kind of change over the years, even before the pandemic, used to be yeah. everyone went right back into the room for coffee afterwards. And it didn't matter where you stood, if you were a CEO of a company or if you were 23, you know, you just talked to people. And well, it was church. It was church. And right. Yeah. And, and, that, and high school uh, ball games. The, the nature of the relationship that all of them, uh, all the Christian churches, that's one of the basic parts. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, it, it's a bunch of old people. Young right. people do not go to church. Yeah. And we're already at the point that they have, Never, you know, they weren't even drug in the church. Nobody right. wanted that age. Right? Young, young people don't want to go to church yeah. to begin with, but we went because we had to. We had to. But they get familiar. Right. It's like church weddings. When's the last time you went to a church wedding? Well, nah, we're out mm-hmm. in a field someplace, mm-hmm. and uh, or we're at the seashore, and I, I, I've noticed that. Uh, yeah. There's some interesting data. And funerals, yeah. I think your engineering and economics training as you ahead of the curve again, John, with birth rate, I've been telling people when you get into these deep discussions, and I'll say it, and I get weird looks because I'm quoting the data you're quoting, 
And I, I'm saying it won't be long before the government's going to have to straight just pay cash, homie, to have kids because we, we need more taxpayers. Well, I mean, there's just all yeah. there is to it. Well, take a look at it. We think just the last couple of weeks, uh, the information about China's, mm-hmm. uh, it's called total fertility rate, how yeah. many women or how many kids every woman of childbearing age has. And they people talk about the data is funny, but it or may not be trustworthy. But I think it's just really hard to collect with 1.4 billion people. But they think their population is actually closer to 1.2 as they get better, better data. But the problem is, Greg, there is no example in history of a free people or even mildly or moderately free people reversing a population decline. Mm. I, I'd hate to be negative about this, but the babies that aren't being born won't have babies 20 years from now. Right. And so it starts feeding on itself the same way a population boom. The right. result is that I am very skeptical of the 10 billion people uh, estimates by the end of the century. Mm. I really think we get eight and a half and, but China may already have reached peak, peak, peak people. Mm. Russia has, Portugal has, Italy has. Mm. Uh, they're already declining in population, and there's nothing in the demographics that suggests that they will be able uh, able to recover from it. And I don't, you know, France is trying to mm. uh, pay people to have more kids or make it easier uh, i think it does help a little bit it should those couple of studies out of denmark who are facing this is uh you have a stronger social safety net where there's child yeah. care yeah because so many women uh now are working as a matter of fact uh, uh, we're awfully close to uh the, i think the workforce is mostly women don't quote me on that but it's really close mm-hmm. so uh, they just and then if you read, uh, you know, popular magazines or, or mm-hmm. the new, uh, other uh, psychological or, or think pieces, uh, there's a growing number of women or couples, rather, mm-hmm. who just can't see it. Yeah. I really don't want to have kids. We're having a great time. Yeah. I think it's incredibly short-sighted. You know, somebody's got to, you know, put me in the home at <laughs> some point. And uh, what a treasure children are but yeah. that's tough to communicate yeah. and again it gets back to that community because they weren't in a community where they got to see parents and people uh dealing with all the stages of their life all they're seeing is it, you know, like in our church is guys our age right. and we can talk about our grandkids and stuff like that uh then young women especially but also couples mm-hmm. married or unmarried because that mm-hmm. that uh, sequence of events now happens backwards you buy mm-hmm. a house together or you move in you buy a house and yeah. and then you have a lot of fun and then in your 30s you think okay we'll have babies well they find out nature is not crazy about uh wait you waiting that long and so it's really how do we reverse that without uh right. enormous uh, turmoil economically That's... and i haven't found any viable answer nobody and nobody else i know of has either yeah well i, I again i was you know, you bring it up. I think it's a question and, and a data that a truth we're going to have to deal with more upfrontly going forward here. What? Let me lob this at you, John. Just curious your take. Um, now, one of the things, and again, our daughters are thirty and twenty-eight, no kids, both married. But um, 
We, we have you been hitting, hitting around? <laughs> no, my wife and I, Jackie, we, we, hey, we've, uh, but here's the deal. You know, you raise kids now and you, you pour everything into them and then uh, off they go. And there's the financial element of it. And I don't discount that in the old, yep. old you know, 30 yep. years ago, it was, it wasn't stressful, but it just, it feels to, on one hand, like an investment. And now the kids, as they get into that age where they're at, plus all the issues in the world. And there seems to be this current, uh, it makes me really sad, but the fear-based, the fear-based no, fear approach of everything and, you know, we do have issues we have to deal with them. I wonder, is there a future for an optimist in this world? Uh, I keep hoping so. As a matter of fact, I, I hate writing columns or doing commentary on U.S. Farm Report where here's the best projection I can give you or, mm -hmm. or the best idea I have. But there are some topics that it's very difficult um, mm -hmm. to find, you know, the the pony, uh, if you remember that old joke and about the kid in, the, in there, mm -hmm. it's just very difficult to find the upside. And yeah. my editors aren't crazy about that. You get the same thing. Uh, well, it's easier for you. Machinery prices are going up. That's your <laughs> column every month. Right itself. Every, everybody loves it. You're the most red paid. Oh, get gag me with a spoon. <laughs> I've got to actually come up with something. And I want to be hopeful. And I want to point yeah. out, but there's nothing in there. Yeah. Uh, exactly what you're talking about. I re remember my younger son. Um, they didn't have their be uh, didn't have children until in their 30s, and there mm -hmm. were some. Uh, it, and we were around Thanksgiving. We were at Thanksgiving around the table, and uh, finally Jan said, "Listen, both our daughters-in-law were there, and uh, neither had children at that time." And she said. Listen, guys, those eggs aren't getting any younger. And I about <laughs> fell over. I'm going. She was just. I, I thought she, I was. She took the direct I I approach. Was <laughs> no point messing around. Let's just get right to it here. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think uh, both the families uh, found out that uh, sure there was a great years in the 20s and 30s when they're young, both two professionals making lots of money and they traveled and they did stuff. The stuff that we had to put off to we're in our fifties and sixties right. because, you know, we had kids and you had to take care of them and we right. didn't have the money. That's right. what yeah. it boiled down to. And you get two professional people and this is not unusual. You've got, um, you've got women being the primary breadwinner now at mm -hmm. over 40, well, 40 some odd percent soon will be the primary breadwinner in most households. Mm -hmm. um, so it's difficult for them to say, I'm going to take a couple years out and there's no paid leave or anything like you have in Denmark or yeah. Sweden or something like that, the Nordic States. Yeah. And you can't be sure your job will be there. Right. So we're just unbreeding ourselves uh, out of existence. So you and I won't see it, but yeah. uh, and, and it's universal. It's around yeah. the, around the world. There aren't well, any countries. Uh, but Nigeria was one of the last one, but it looks like their fertility rate has peaked. Okay. Well, now that we've got people completely freaked out about our future, no, this is good. I mean, yeah. it's real. We have to deal with it. And I think talking about it is important. But uh, let's let's go after the, after the opportunity angle, John. I'm just wondering if you've heard any vibes 
maybe coming, you know, through the pandemic. And you referenced it earlier, the cost of living in rural America is just, you know, ugh, you know, versus buying a house in, in Minneapolis or Kansas City or whatever. Do we have yeah. do we have opportunity to to collectively kind of pitch that along I, along with I, the I, fact that we're I wondered that, Greg. I thought uh, well, like doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I'm able to have a career as with U.S. Farm Important Farm Journal and doing this stuff, never leaving the farm. Yep. it's fantastic. Yep. Now I've had to cobble around to get a decent internet, and mm-hmm. I, I'm hoping you know I've got Starlink has got my money, and theoretically I should have my dish, <laughs> but uh, I'm hoping that we can finally get somewhere you know. Uh, uh, you know, uh, at least a 20 meg down and up right. uh, connection. A lot of places have it, and they keep promising it. But the, if you look at all the projections about broadband coming out, which would be one big part of the solution, yeah. uh, is that they they'll they'll go up to 97 percent. Mm-hmm. Well, three you know, the 90 we'll be able to make this available to 97 percent of America. Most farmers are in that 3%. I mean, there aren't that many of us to begin with. And the last mile, uh, well, my younger son was in telecommunications. Uh, he worked for U.S. Cellular, and he was talking about that. You can't build out to go to that last mile. Mm-hmm. And so I'm six miles from, from even from Christman, and they're not going to lay fiber optic out here. Uh, there are other ways we can do it. I think Starlink is probably the best shot, and I sure hope it happens. And by the way, folks, I'll be writing about my uh, my experience if it ever does come. <laughs> but I, you know, if you can't trust Elon Musk, uh, who can you trust? <laughs> oh, but that's awesome. That, that is one thing that maybe that would work. Uh, but the problem there is okay, it's it's inexpensive. You can have a professional job and maybe go in. Uh, the office every other week and yeah. wherever that may be, but you still have to be uh, 50 or 60 miles from something like Kansas city or Chicago or, mm-hmm. or, um, well, it needs, it needs a successful city it has yeah. to have the, the three meds, eds or feds. You have a federal department there, a big mm-hmm. plant, you have a university yeah. or you have a hospital complex. Yeah. And so, uh, it, you, you're, it's tough to get out. Uh, into western Illinois, for instance, uh, Borgatonia is how they refer to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, and that's the problem. Uh, it, there's just we're we're become, going back to the plains, and so yeah. rather than moan and groan about uh, you know the way it used to be and it was so much better, we had all these, yeah. is I'm I'm trying to find ways that how do people in Australia. Right. I mean, out in the middle of nowhere. For that matter, guys in Wyoming. I've yeah. driven through Wyoming. Mm-hmm. My God, there's a lot of Wyoming with nothing in it. And, <laughs> yeah. it, and so I'm thinking, how do we adapt yeah. to maybe we will be just uh, a farm every every mile or two and nobody else out here? Yeah. And how, what, what will our life be like? And how can we... Uh, make it as rich as possible because somebody's going to be out here to farm it. Yeah. Now, so I, I'm looking for those kinds of answers right. and I'm looking what other countries have done and, and 
to get into that, or I'm looking to our own history, like the past, mm-hmm. uh, guys in the plains or in the uh, or in the far west that you know, how did they live on cattle ranches right. way far away, and mm-hmm. how did that? How were they able to create any kind of social network or, or connections for a community? Hopefully, maybe our our ag rural DNA will help us out here, John. I know when I stepped out the the door the other night to take our two schnauzers outside and the temperature dropped from like 45 to five. And I, I thought back, I thought back, holy cow, how did our ancestors, when they came out to the prairie here, how did they survive and think they had a future? But they figured it out. So hopefully, well, maybe they'll I, see. I don't know if they figured it out or they just turned out to be a heck of a lot tougher than I am right now. No, I, I've had the same, I've sat and wondered the same thing. How did these guys march out here? There's nothing out here but buffalo grass, yep. and they they just endured enormous they uh, difficulties. Mm-hmm. And uh, partly, I think it's because of who they were. They generally were uh, people who were desperate for something, yeah. uh, who'd always wanted to own land in the old country, and you were a third son, and so that wasn't going to happen. And yeah. it, or they were frankly, on the run, Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of England shipped a lot of people over here and said, look, uh, you don't have to go to jail, but you have to go to America. We were not quite as bad as Australia, but close. So our ancestors were not quite the wretched refuse like on the Statue of Liberty, Mm -hmm. but they were uh, bounty of fortune hunters, rather, uh, guys who were going to get rich. Uh, I read a a wonderful uh, the summary of the history of, of my part of the world, the, the savannas, it's actually yeah. of Illinois. And it turned out the guys who came on the, with the Homestead Act, uh, they only generally owned the, the land on an average of three or four years. Mm. Their job was to break the ground. They became specialists and then sell it mm. to the next guy coming okay. over on the boat, okay. especially in your part of the country. Yeah. When the Scandahoovians started flooding into mm-hmm. the Northern Plains uh, because all the, the Scott, Scott English type yeah. people uh, from Appalachia had already taken up the good stuff in Ohio and like yeah. Indiana and Illinois. Yeah. And so you guys, and so you settled in communities, but you all brought your own culture with you and they stayed right. together. Right. Uh, but it was still a process of you had guys specializing in starting the farm and flipping it, right. essentially. Right. And, and that was far more prevalent. I thought they all came out here and they settled down, and then, uh, but it turned out this farm is. I'm the sixth generation. Aaron's the seventh on ours. But there was there were some people, uh, at least one guy ahead of us. I've been doing the research, who actually had the land grant, and he's and then he sold it to my whatever great 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 whatever, and uh, for a significant profit hmm. uh, because it was free to begin with, yeah. and somehow they were able to work that out and. Uh, but that was that was how they mm. uh, developed uh, the community. And so maybe if you translate that back to today, we're going to find a handful of farmers who do, either by trial and error or, or genius, I don't care how, come up with ways to create these things that you and I feel like we're losing. Yeah. And A, they'll make a lot of money, uh, which I don't object to at all, but B, we're really good at this industry of saying, whoa, look what Bob's doing out in the field. Right. I'm going to try one of those things. Right. And 
that's one of the best things about farming is it's done out in the open. Yeah. And so I, I, if, if we can, if those people do, and I think they are arising yeah. and creating the institutions we need, it may be that we need to let some institutions go. Mm-hmm. And, and that, uh, you take a look at the farm organizations, you take a look at, are they actually hindering the development of these people or are what I suspect is these people aren't involved in them. They don't, they mm-hmm. don't go to uh, the corn classic or the mm-hmm. commodity classic. They're not meeting people, uh, uh, meeting in quotation, mm-hmm. meeting people. And, but they are socially active. They're on Twitter or Facebook or yeah. something like that. And, Forming a community that way, is that a viable answer? I don't know, and time well, alone will tell, but they are uh, creating something that we can observe right. and like a social experiment and see how it turns out. Well, uh, I do have one optimistic little uh, data trend that I lob at you. I'm just curious your take on it. Now, through the pandemic, of course, it was, you know, and is very challenging, but one of the things I was interested in is the People of all ages, but particularly young people, started traveling in the U.S. to the national parks in numbers never seen before. On the one, I, yeah, that's it's just to me that's uh, you, you, optimistic. I mean, try doing it. Try doing it now, Greg. Uh, <laughs> do you know what the waiting time for Yosemite is? I I, I saw something the other day. Uh, I have no idea how it, long is it. It's it's hideous. It's like two years. Huh. This February. Uh, some friends of ours who have, who have a motorhome, which is another big thing. Yeah, uh, huge. You, know, you, you, you don't have to. You can cook and everything and take it with you. You don't yeah. have to stay in a hotel, which yeah. creeps some of us out. Yeah. But they were – this is February. They're out in Utah at, I don't know, something called Monuments National Park yeah, yeah. or National yeah. – Okay. And it's not one of the big headline parks. And he said it was cramped. Mm. He said we had to, you know, there was a line getting in. It said they cut off admission. Uh, mm. You know, it, it, they asked. He, he did, I think, or, well, his wife did, uh, bother to go online and get a reservation. Okay. But he said, this is not Yellowstone. This was just, mm-hmm. okay, regular. But he got to talk to a ranger, and he said, we're seeing exactly what you're talking about, just more than we can imagine and mm-hmm. the park service is trying to figure out with a shrinking budget uh, and you know the parks uh, we actually did away with some parks said we need more right. uh, we need more wild spaces and people get their motor home and they travel around they do and it, they become some, some of them eventually form kind of traveling mobs yeah. and you know they all meet together at this this place well, and that one, but that I think you're right is one of the things we're seeing arise because God knows who wants to get on a plane. Yeah, I, it just creeps the heck out of me. <laughs> Are you a germaphobe, John? Come on, they're not. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really not. But you're I'm a data guy. Enough. You're a data guy. Uh, you know, I I'm flown enough that where one of my biggest worries in my life is that I'm going to die before I can use up my frequent flyer miles. <laughs> but it wasn't a fun experience. Yeah. Uh, they they sucked most of it out of it uh, after nine and eleven. Yeah. But now it's just oh my gosh. It's a little oppressive, and, isn't you know, it? Yeah. And I have enough miles that I can usually bump up to business class. Yeah. Uh, and you think, oh, this is going to be so luxurious. I, I did fly. I can't remember where I had to go, but I, oh, I flew down to see my brother. And mm-hmm. uh, 
it just it was just no fun. Yeah. The, there was no glamour. There was no nothing. Yeah. And then you've got these yah- yahoos on the plane. Mm-hmm. They, you're just hoping. Right. Don't I don't have put an yeah. idiot on there that wants to fight with a, uh, yeah. the flight attendant. That's, that's all I'm asking it's here. Just... And you just kiss the sweet earth when you get off the other <laughs> right. end. Right. So I, you know, as much as and farmers are used to driving a lot anyway, right. I could see that becoming a big thing. Well, again, I, I, I found it optimistic, that, again, because I know how hard it is to – because on the one hand, personally, I know how hard it is to change your habits. But for, hey, is for, that one of the categories that you keep track of? <laughs> no, no, motorhomes? Oh, actually, yeah, we do have auction prices on motorhomes. You bet. RVs, uh, we've got auction prices on uh, outhouses, helicopters, you name it, John. Any, <laughs> anything sold at auction. If, if I get a data point okay, oh, on that's it. that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> I just didn't know whether it was becoming – um, so common on farms that you're really doing charts and graphs and, well, and hard data like you do 175 yeah, horsepower tractors. Put it this way. I haven't written any farm journal columns about used uh, RVs yet, but it might be coming. How about that? Uh, well, there may be people that would – that your guidance, you know, they already think you're somewhere after Leviticus when it comes <laughs> to buying machinery already. And so uh, I, I would encourage that because – if you had somebody, you know, if we were going to do that, Jan has no interest whatsoever, but if we were going to do that, it would, I would love to have somebody I, I could trust rather than the guy that, you Trying know, to sell you. just yeah. bought one. And so you don't spend, you know, 200000 because you could drop a bunch oh. of one of those babies uh, right. on something you hate or it doesn't work out well. Yeah. It's funny. The flow of money, now this gets into your economics background, but we, I was talking about this today. Iowa Farm Bureau crowd uh, when the pandemic hit and all of a sudden you can't spend money on going out to eat or your kids' hockey games or whatever. Money finds a way to flow. And we started, we saw it immediately with under 100 horsepower tractors, ATVs, skid yep. steers, jet skis. That stuff, the new ones just got sold. The used ones got bought up. People were searching. Uh, that the, the flow of money is fascinating to f***, isn't it? Well, and I think... Uh just this month, uh, the latter part of November and the first part of December, I think it's about to explode. And this is just a wild guess. You you know these things, but by the time I get the data, uh, it, it it's a little bit late to make projections. But uh, a lot of farmers, you know, I used to keep my cash flow projection up pretty well up to date. I mean, because mm-hmm. it was always a close enough battle that you'd you didn't know whether you're going to make it all the way on your op loan. And so I, but a lot of guys are in a position where they don't be you know, like later in life where they don't keep up. And a lot of them are just now hearing from their accountant or their own <laughs> computer or somebody saying, Hey, we made a wad of money this year. Yeah. And their accountant may be saying, well, if you're thinking about doing anything with machinery or, you know, you're out of depreciation or if, you know, don't buy for tax purposes. But on the other hand, if you have to have to buy for Pete's sakes, get it done before the end of the year. And, or. Well, John, so, I can absolutely 110% confirm to you now that this is happening because as we speak, there's an online farm auction tomorrow in Charleston, Illinois. One day out, and you know the online bidding doesn't really heat up till the last hour or whatever. It already has the highest price combine, 
tractor, and planter I've ever seen, and it's all on one sale. So Unbelievable. Well, you know, and that's that's just it. Uh, guys, uh, people have money, uh, or farmers do, and they're looking at, but I think they were surprised yeah. at how good it really was. They, they knew everything was going okay, but unless they really liked uh, keeping their books up to date, and most of them are just kind of doing things in their head. Okay, let's say the corn made uh, five bucks or so, and and it made a couple hundred bushels. Okay, I'll probably probably turn out like this. And now they're getting, especially if they have an account, and they're going saying, "Dude, you're going to have here's your tax what it looks like your tax bill for uh, due in February." Yep. And they're going, "Say what?" Right. And you know. I, so Aaron and I have talked about that, and that's one of the things he tracks it. So in the middle of the season, well, I just after I got done doing beans, uh, and I've been reading you, and I know decent combines or used combines are just impossible yeah. to find. It's the hottest and, I've ever seen. Yeah, and I, so I was talking to the, my longtime salesman, and I asked him. I said. When you don't have anything to say sell, how do you make a living? And he said, "Well, here's the kicker." And, and I didn't know this, but he said, uh, "I've been on commission almost my entire career." So the new guys, new sale guys coming into most of the big dealerships, are on salary. Hmm. And I don't know how that works for sales, but nonetheless, he said, "I'm seriously thinking about retiring strictly because what you said. There's no, I've got no product." Yeah, I actually had an industry veteran, this was a month ago, dropped me a note and said, Pete, the untold story here is, and he said exactly what you said. It's the the the, the veteran salesman on commission. There, there's nothing, there's going to be nothing to sell. Well, it's tough. I, don't, I don't mean to blame you, Pete, but online auctions haven't really <laughs> helped dealerships, that's for sure. Well, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think the efficiency uh, we grossly underestimated the efficiency of, uh, of this type of transaction. We, yeah. we should have learned from uh, some of the precursors for uh, that were coming out early, just for junk the guys had, and they yeah. put it on. What is? I'm not YouTube, but help me out. My and my aging brain. What is? Where is it? Where you sell all the stuff on? on the internet. Well, I mean, uh, Facebook marketplace has got big and then there's Craigslist and, uh, yeah, Craigslist was one of them. And yeah. I, I sold some, some of my old work, woodworking tools that sure, way. Sure. And I would never have been able to, right. you know, it, it, it was just a router for, oh, yeah. Right. And a table saw. So suddenly the things that would have just either gone into junk or into storage or suddenly they move. It, it, get circulated and right. guys get used to doing that just like you've talked about online auctions yeah. taking off once you've done that why go stand in the cold and uh, yeah, you know have your head messed with when you at least can be at home <laughs> and, and your wife standing there and saying no no see uh, now it's absolutely not while you click away it's but, today john when i was i met with a guy he came up after i talked uh, to the group and now on our machine repeat online auction, December 21st, we've got a 4430 deer with 2,200 actual hours on it, plastic still on the seat. And he came oh. up and he was teasing me. And he actually bid on it while we were talking there. But he, it was interesting. He said, you know, since the pandemic, Greg, uh, these online auctions, he goes, I'm a competitive guy. 
He goes, I don't like to lose. So when I get oh, in, geez. when I get invested in, uh, and I was like, Hey, thanks for bidding. Make sure you stop back, <laughs> keep bidding. But uh, the gamification of the that process, whatever you're buying, whether it's one of your tools on, you know, Craigslist right. or my, I mean, eBay. That's what I was eBay. To there you go. My wife yesterday, we we had an ottoman that we no longer need at the house, and she put it on, put it online, and it was gone in an hour. I was like, well, well, it's just unbelievable. I've started doing that uh, with my power tools. I've upgraded to you know bigger because I, I I need I need more power tools here in the wood wood, wood yep. Yep. But I had I had good stuff to begin with, decent uh, Jet and Delta and, and major brands. And what I get a kick out of is I take a look at what they're selling for on on eBay or Craigslist and mm-hmm. look for that, mm-hmm. and what guys are asking. And then I go I. I at half or less, mm-hmm. but somewhere there's a woodworker uh, within driving distance that goes, "Holy mackerel! This guy's got a six-inch jet planer, right. planer joiner, and uh, if that's one, I could finally afford to have one." And a couple of them have come down here and almost got into tears about, "This is great! I've wanted one for so long, yeah. I just couldn't afford it." And well, so, part of that, John, could be the fact that there's it's... There's a good thing about that. Yeah, I, I didn't know what to do with it. I just wanted yeah. to get it out of the house yeah. or out of the shop. And so there's there are all kinds of odd things that uh, this type of wide connection yeah. and able, you know, uh, you know, literally worldwide commerce. I yeah. tell you the best one, maybe this is, was in your column, or I forget where I read, but uh, a guy had... Uh, three cotton pickers mm-hmm. and then i don't i don't know anything about growing cotton so you'll you know you can help mm-hmm. me with this and then he also had uh bowl buggies or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. and this is the old style where you had to right. pick the cotton then you created modules or something mm-hmm. which has you know just been totally revolutionized yep. by those gargantuan module building uh cotton machines Eight hundred thousand bucks. Was, he was my age he was writing me he said i uh I was going to sell out. He said, I ended up selling them to a Greek uh, dealer mm. who was going to ship them over there. Sure. He said, but at least I got something out of them. He said, they were absolutely worthless mm. over here. He said, they're good machines, but they had quite a few hours on them. But nobody watched. You don't have small yeah. cotton farmers. You have big yeah. cotton farmers. And the gins want those bales or those modules or whatever they call right. uh, to be one specific kind and all the same. So, well, John, whole, I think, I think, I'm sorry. Well, I think there's opportunity for, for you and I here not to be grumpy old guys. We can find optimism here because technology right. is facility. You know, it reminds me uh, 11 years ago, I drove to El Paso and I drove down there to On watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I go now, maybe so much. But anyway, I was there to cover an auction. And the hook for me was that they auctioneered in three languages, English, Spanish, and German. And uh, But the interesting thing was they had a lot of Maytag super small washing machines, like just tiny. And I was like, well, who in the world wants these things? And they said, well, the Mennonite community from the Mexican side came up. They all spoke German. And... The way they lived, they were like that Greek cotton farmer. That's what they needed. Here they were. A market was developed. An auction company said, well, if it's not good enough to auctioneer just in English, shoot, 
we'll we'll hire a young Spanish guy. He can auctioneer in Mennonite German or Spanish. And the market worked. It flowed. That stuff brought more money than I could have imagined. I was blown away. <laughs> well, the, and the other side of it is just like uh, these young woodworkers that guys are just really uh, amazed they were able to afford this. Think about what this is doing for people in Mexico or wherever that are Greek cotton farmers in this case that he's able to get a hold of one of these machines and they you know they take them apart and they take care of them right so it's it's just a good thing and you're right this is optimistic it makes all kinds of lives better right uh it does increase the level of competition but (laughs) i think we're ready for that yeah well, uh, John, is, uh, I could talk to you for hours. This is great. I appreciate your time, John, so much and sharing your sure. perspective. Let me well, just let call me, me get some time. <laughs> I, hey, I will, buddy. Uh, let's talk a supply chain issue here uh, as the calendar is coming down 2021. Uh, obviously, like nothing any of us have seen. What are you sensing, feeling, hearing about into 2022 here? Obviously, farmers under stress. I see it on the equipment side, but what what are you hearing and putting together out there? Well, a lot of guys are talking about pickup trucks. They want to get a monster pickup truck, and that that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But the thing you have to be careful is the chip shortage comes up again and again, and you have to be really careful about uh, treating that like chips are chips. No, it there are specific ones at specific levels to do specific jobs. And the problem we have, oddly enough, with automobiles, but especially farm machinery, if you're TSMC, uh, the Taiwan manufacturing, mm-hmm. uh, who makes 60% of the basic chips uh, for the world, uh, are you really interested in selling, you know, five, 6,000 to John Deere? every year when you could sell three million to uh, a a phone manufacturer there. No, you're not. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty basic on their part. And as we talk about, well, we'll just make them over here. Well, there are a couple problems with that. First off, you're talking four years, get a plant up like that Mm -hmm. and running. And in that four years, TSMC has already got a 10 year technical head start. Well, TSC and Samsung mm-hmm. and UMC, those are the big three that do 80-some-odd percent of all the chips. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and the other thing that happens is we get these things up and running. Okay, we've got that. It's just like any other competition. TSMC says, okey-doke, we're going to cut, cut our prices in half. Right. And so, uh, you know, there's absolutely no profit for these new startups because they, they – got to depreciate a heck of a lot of machinery right. and they've got so either you end up with and farmers that aren't paying attention to this because i get a lot of grief about socialist thinking mm-hmm. but they say well the government ought to subsidize building these plants and they say wait a minute isn't that socialized industry mm-hmm. no 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 this is different we're just going to help them get started and yeah. own the plan i'm going wait wait <laughs> but the problem is no investor in his right mind yeah. would i think be interested in a, a chip factory fab startup uh, simply because they know the behemoth out there. It's just we have it in fertilizer. We have it in farm machinery. Yeah. You bring in a new player and 
they don't play nice. It's tough to uh, dance. They say, okay, we'll just put our stuff on sale, dude, right. and see see how long you can bleed ink. Yeah, it's tough to dance with gorillas, isn't it? Oh, it is. Mm. Well, John, I, I'm going to lob one more at you here. Sure. Uh, the topic of China um, obviously has become so much more intertwined over the last 10-plus years for us here in American Ag. And uh, with your background and your connections and also your military uh, background, going back to when you got out of college there, just, I mean, what what's your gut telling you on uh, where we're at with China? Now, I saw they just announced – you know, diplomatic boycott of the, you know, the Olympics, Winter Olympics. Oh, the Olympics, yeah. yeah. I'm not even sure what that means. I don't either, frankly. I'm glad the athletes did, did can have, still compete. Did we have a lot of diplomatic ice skaters? I didn't know that. <laughs> Crying out loud. Uh, where, where are we the, headed with China? The problem with China is right now we've decided we're going to talk tough. Yeah. But uh, from the military aspect, uh, you need to take, you know, take a cold shower before you decide this is what we'll do if they invade Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, the most interesting aspect I've seen has been that uh, if they were to invade Taiwan, those factories for TSMC that make the chips, it, they will be sabotaged. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the Taiwanese, uh, they're, they're not going to go down gracefully and they're, they'd mm-hmm. be pretty formidable. But they're 6,000 miles away. It would be a naval nightmare try to get over there and you get a carrier over there or, or as we used to call them in the submarine service a target mm. and you're not it's not afghanistan it's not iraq there's no shock at all here you're talking about a behemoth country that okay we could nuke uh mm-hmm. a whole bunch of cities which would be insane right to begin with it doesn't matter they're a resilient civilization been around yeah. for five thousand years let's stop talking about war uh, that just is borders on stupidity yeah. but and let's and but let's talk about all right what kind of economic levers and right. oddly enough we have gotten ourselves in a position to where we don't want you know you can't build a refinery or a chemical plant here you can't uh, refine rare metals because mm-hmm. uh nobody wants it in your community yep you know? Yeah, you know, right. just think about there. Well, didn't they try to build a refinery in South Dakota about five, six years ago, and to take advantage of the tar sands oil, and they were going to refine it up there? If you can't get approval uh, from the uh, some yeah. community to put a gigantic refinery in South Dakota, where in the heck are you going to put it? It's going to be tough and, to plunk one in Central yeah, PA. Yeah, it isn't really it? is. Huh. And so it, it, we've got. I think we need to ratchet down the rhetoric a little bit. Okay, maybe we are. I think rather than enemies, what we're talking about here are the most formidable competition we've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, since well, until the late 1800s of last year, yeah. when we overtook the English as the largest economy, or the British rather. And so, uh, lesson one, I think, is curb your tongue. Uh, let's. And on behalf of all the the naval officers that I knew and and the the the, the troopers mm-hmm. out there, yeah. uh, you know, the, it treats their uh, job too lightly. I think, and I, I'm yeah. always siding with uh, let's find other ways. And yeah. I think uh, the solution a lot of it will lie in finances. But I also mm-hmm. think 
there's a place for absolute ignorum because mm-hmm. it looks to me like Xi is in strong danger of overreaching. And mm-hmm. this is not only my thought, that, but uh, their real estate is starting to unravel. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, and it would be a disaster for us, too, if China had an economic meltdown because yeah. we are so closely linked. But on the other hand, let's stop talking about missiles and submarines and car- aircraft carriers and Taiwan, and we'll show them what for. Yeah. It, it sounds wonderfully patriotic, but that's not what war is going to be like. That's well, not what this kind of uh, disputes are going to be settled. I'm hearing echoes here, uh, John, of our previous topic when we were talking about delaminating communities and how we're in our own kind of uh, thinning bubbles and stuff. Now, on the one hand, I'll tell you our oldest daughter, who's 30 now, back when she was in college, this was 10 years ago, and it was a different time, but she went to China to teach English for six weeks. And that experience of her doing that, her reaction to the Chinese people and our reaction to her experience there was like, these these folks, I mean, they have a plan and they're working it. <laughs> they're pretty committed to lifting from where they came from. Um, and I think the key word there, and you touched on it, is work. Right. These people uh, are not these people. I, mm-hmm. The Chinese that uh, are, my pastor is Chinese. Mm-hmm. And she has uh, been here. Well, she came over here and talked to U of I, which has 6,000 Chinese students, yeah. and then became a teacher or a professor and everything. And then she uh, became a pastor. And it's been wonderful uh, working with her uh, on different things. But she's told stories about uh, how how far they have moved, the, how deep the mm-hmm. poverty was when she grew up. For instance, sure. she said that her her big treat every week was on Sunday she got an egg, a hard-boiled egg. Mm. And she's not making anything up here. These people have had a, finally a chance, thanks to Deng Xiaoping, making a sharp right turn for Mao, yeah. but say, all right, to get rich is glorious. Now, I, he may or may not have said that, but that, right. stuck, that was the idea, and that stuck. Now, right. they've got endemic uh, corruption, but mm-hmm. it, it also kind of uh, if you read history, this is what the uh, the Gilded Era in the U.S., the Rockefellers and, mm-hmm. and uh, Carnegie's, those guys didn't get it by just square dealing and, <laughs> and uh, being decent people and sure. taking care of everybody. Nope. nope Ruthless. Nope. Uh, they did it. There's, I think there's a period in a development of economy that if you wanted to move along fast, you got to put up with a lot of fairly loose and, and yeah. weird operators. But the Chinese have done something nobody. They had almost no economy in the 60s. Yeah. I mean, a, G, a GDP of like two right. or something. And now, you know, it's, it's very similar to ours. And uh, it's the people. Those You see the pictures of the, their engineers just, mm-hmm. I mean, they're flabbergasting. Now, one of the nice things about if you're an engineer in China and you want to build a bridge someplace, mm-hmm. uh, you just go to the government and say, we need a bridge from here to here. Right. And they go in, move the people out. They're, you know, right. The, right. You know, the country owns all the ground. And that's why they can have. They built 36,000 miles of high speed. That's over 200 mile an hour right. rail in the same time that we've been fooling around and built uh, 250. Right. Uh, you know, sell a corridor. 
But think about that. Suppose I could get on in Chicago and be in New York in two hours or yeah. something like that yeah. in perfect comfort and more, a lot more room being able yeah. to get up and walk around uh, and zipping along. So they've, and they've been pouring money into infrastructure because they didn't have anything else to do with it. Right. All their savings rate is so high. Well, the problem is unless the, their consumers uh, start, you know, buying stuff, yeah. uh, then more food, more meat, that sort of thing, that what we see and what we hope to have happen, uh, that there's, uh, China doesn't work. You yeah. can't just keep cities and they're, uh, yeah. they, they've got, which are being corrected. But the kicker of it is what, the, what doesn't help is to have a lot of adversarial, uh, really militaristic yeah. jar, uh language go, uh, that they see and respond to in kind right and you yeah. could still say well we disagree mm-hmm. and please don't yeah not please but uh there will be some real ramifications if you head into taiwan kind of like what uh, the president did with ukraine i was glad to see that you got to spell things out and mm-hmm. you have to spell it out here's what our financial institutions will do yeah and that's when people go yikes you know, I, Consequences I, I, are, are powerful things, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, if money flows around the world outside government control, uh, outside of any national institution, and if you scare the money, uh, you, your economy yeah. has got nothing to run on. Right. So no, I'm those, with you. Are, those are the kind of weapons and battles that we're going to be fighting, I think, or how we should fight them. And uh, we need to get off this, let's wave the flag and send some Marines over. No, yeah. I've, I've known Marines. They're nice people. I don't want them hurt, right. and especially not 6,000 miles away. No, I, I, I hear you, John, and it's uh, my, my thing with China, and again, I'm no expert or whatever, but just taking the American uh, historic mentality here is I think we're underselling their work ethic. And if we don't get, oh. if we don't get busy and roll up our sleeves and start to compete, which that's part of our DNA, it's like bring it. You want to take my cheese? Good luck trying. But we've kind of lost that here, chiseling ourselves apart the past few years. And if we don't get our house in order, <laughs> we're going to be on the wrong end of that leverage. I think. Well, you were going to be high. Uh, high cost producers, and that yeah. boy, that really happened this year. Anybody who took a look at their input budget, but right. uh, to keep, you have to be careful on making comparisons. Mm-hmm. They're still at the point uh, where uh, just labor, mm-hmm. unskilled labor, is can has a long way to go. We're at the point where we're replacing unskilled labor with automation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, just look at look at our farms and and what one guy can do. Right. Uh, that, that cotton farmer, that, that cotton farmer, cotton picker story. Right. You know, it just amazes you what they can do there. So it, they're at a different stage in their development. Now, granted we're in the same century, yeah. but they're reaching a point now where their labor costs are above the rest of Southeast China. Vietnam is undercutting them. Indonesia's undercutting them. Yeah. Malaysia's undercutting them. So all, all of a sudden, your clothes are going to be saying, uh, going to be saying, made in Malaysia, made in Mexico, made someplace other than China. They're running out of labor for the workforce. They're aging very rapidly. Yeah. And they're, uh, they've made enough gains to where they're having to bid up for labor. 
which is exactly what happened in the when the labor movement and we've got unions and stuff yeah. uh, no matter how you feel about it right. that's when labor prices and we got those jobs where a guy could take his lunchbox go to work work there for 40 years and get a watch and come raise come home and have a decent yep. retirement which is kind of the image we keep thinking that's what they're right. that's where they're working toward right. and hard work hard physical labor will get them there we're now where it's it's somewhat uh, you know working long hours but if you don't keep track of the numbers, if mm-hmm. you don't make decent projections about the future, uh, if you don't take some risks because you're surrounded by a bunch of guys that will, uh, it really doesn't matter what China's doing. Your problem is over here. Yeah. Yeah. John, hey, I tell you what, we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, talk China, supply chain issues, engineering, uh, hopes for small town rural America opportunities. This has been so much fun. Uh, I thank you for for hanging out, giving the time, and um, I will call you again. By the way, to have another well, no, discussion. No, I, I didn't. I didn't want to sound needy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just, I've already. I went through that in college. I won't do that. You know, call me. You know, and John, you. you, I, you. <laughs> I, I would say you gave me one of the best zingers I've had. It was right after I joined Farm Journal. I think it was down in Louisville. I was there to speak, and I just had my old ratty machinery Pete sweatshirt on, and. You were there speaking, and we were chatting, and you were like, oh, that's how it is. You, you get to show up in a ratty old uh, hoodie and, and give your talk, and I got to wear a suit here. <laughs> you accurately nailed the Machine Repeat brand right there. <laughs> you know, I, I had to I had to get a tie out to go to something. Oh, I, it was my 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, and there, there, there was a strong suggestion from some people that I live with about – and I – I hadn't worn a tie since I stopped doing the show, USFR, and stopped being the host nine years ago. Ah, And nobody wears them in church. And I was just at a funeral visitation. Uh, Guys looked like they came in from the field, for crying out loud. And I I did go uh, sometimes at funerals. At least the pallbearers will have a tie. But for the most part, uh, we have really casualized this whole thing. let me just say this, uh, Greg. This has been a, it's been a blast. And your problem is that I tend to give ten minute answers oh, to thirty second questions. But you know, I super fun. Somewhere in that quantity is maybe a touch of quality. Oh, this is uh, this is like I told you before we started, John. This is my of all the content we do. Uh, this is my favorite format because it, for me, it feels like we're hanging out at an auction in the coffee shop. And that's who I've yeah. always been writing towards is folks in the coffee shop, give them something to chew on. So thank you again for your time. And again, just on behalf of the, you know, farm audience, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, thank you for what you've done and what you've given to American agriculture. You, you've helped us greatly. So I wish you and your family a Merry Christmas. And again, thank you for, uh, for chatting today. You're sure welcome. And that's very kind of you to say, but uh, same thing for you. Have- have a wonderful and safe Christmas. Well, there you go, folks. That was a, a, a winding conversation. I knew it would be, and I, I tell you, I'm so thankful for John for taking time to talk with me. And, again, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, I hope you learned something. And, and, frankly, as John and I were, were talking about this, of all the different contents I do now, I mean, we do two TV shows, and I do a segment on Ag Day, and I'm on AgriTalk every Monday, U.S. Farm Report, writing for Farm Journal, top producer, blogs, YouTube videos. Kind of the most fun is this kind of stuff. 
It's just, hey, John, let's talk. Or in our last episode, talking to Erin Holbert from Dana, Indiana, about her business and brand that she's building. These are the conversations, you know, I'm glad we can go back to auctions for the most part now because I miss talking to people like that because we learn a lot. Um, so, again, uh, so appreciative of John for taking time. We will loop back and have John on again. His his viewpoint is, uh, I think he's ahead of the curve on a lot of things. And so definitely check out his columns and blog on agweb.com and Farm Journal Top Producer. And, again, on U.S. Farm Report and AgWeb. So now, folks, I will point your attention before we wind up here one more thing. Of course, our Machine Repeat monthly online auction is coming up December 21st. And we have a really good-looking lineup of equipment, a great variety. And I'm going to leave you with a conversation I had, and this is about one tractor on the sale in particular. There's a 1973 John Deere 4430 with 2,028 actual original hours. And it's from my my great friend uh, Kurt Miller with Heritage Tractor down there in Seneca, Kansas. Uh, Kurt told me about this tractor a while ago, and they were... Um, kind enough, they're putting it on the auction. It sells absolute, December 21st, no buyer's fee. And I actually hosted, co- or sat in sub for Chip Flory as a host on AgriTalk last Monday. And I had Kurt on, and we talked about this 1973 John Deere 4430 with 2,028 hours. Kurt, I always uh, love talking to you. You're as plugged in as anybody I know in the farm equipment business and got some interesting stuff to talk about. Now, uh, one tractor in particular that you guys are actually putting on our Machine Repeat uh, monthly online auction December 21st. Holy smokes. Tell us about this John Deere 4430, Kurt. Yeah, it's definitely a unique one for sure. I mean, it's a, it's a 1973 John Deere 4430 with uh, 2,028 hours on it. So very unique, very special, um, ex- extremely nice tractor. Um, still has the plastic on the seat. I saw that. You actually have it listed in our machinerypeat.com website now for sale, and then uh, we'll get it hopped over to the December 21st online auction. But, yeah, the plastic on the seat, what, what's the – can you tell us the backstory on this thing? Was it just like a local guy that uh, – what, did he move snow with it or something and just didn't use it much, or somebody gets sick? or? Yeah, so um, I ended up buying that tractor from a, a local customer, um, and he, uh, I was actually on his property buying a different tractor. Um, he mm. was selling a few tractors off and um, walked into the shed and seen this uh, pretty 4430, and I, we just, I mean, I kind of drooled over it for a while, and, and uh, he said, well, I, I, I think I'd sell that, and, and uh, so I made him an offer, and we, uh, we went from there, but uh he actually acquired it from a friend, um, and so uh, his friend's father had it, and he said that um, he had it, uh, when he had it in the shed, he put a, a sheet over it, over the tin work, and, and you can mm. tell, and he just never used the thing. Uh, he had a small property that he that he had it bought for, and okay. uh, just obviously never used it. You can tell uh, once you walk up to it, it just looks immaculate. It's uh, almost a 50-year-old uh, John Deere time machine, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you think about the guy that, that really would be interested in that tractor is, you know, there's so many people that, that broke their teeth on a 4430, and maybe right. they had to sell that tractor off of the farm for whatever reason, and, and they want to 
low hour 4430 back on the farm that i mean this is this is the unit for that person right i love the picture i'm looking at it right now kurt while we're talking the 4430 under your heritage tractor sign uh it just yeah it just looks fantastic and again folks it's it's up for sale uh december 21st machine repeat online auction we'll be getting those listings live on our website here soon and uh Kurt, we'll maybe have you back on on our uh, TV show on RFD TV to preview the auction again because, uh, you know, I, I see lots of 4430s around, but just do not run across ones like this. I mean, plastic on – I don't know that I've ever seen a 4430 with plastic still on the seat. That That's just – it's a one-of-a-kind. Yeah, it's, it's a special tractor for sure. So there you go, folks. I tell you what, if you want to get a Christmas present that your family and friends will talk about – for freaking ever, click the bid button on this 1973 John Deere 4430 with 2,028 hours on it. Sells absolute December 21st, Machine Repeat Monthly Online Auction. Thank you to Kurt Miller, uh, Director of Used Equipment Remarketing with Heritage Tractor. And if you don't know the folks at Heritage, folks, check them out, heritagetractor.com. They are really, really good people, great organization uh, throughout Arkansas, Missouri, and Kansas. So, again, thank you for joining us. Uh, this week on episode 42 of Machinery Pete Podcast. And hey, if I don't catch you before, um, from me and my wife, Jackie, and our family, we just want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And uh, hopefully 2021 will wind up on a positive note for you and your family in 2022. Hey, let's hope for a great year ahead. Until then, hey, we'll see you out at the sales. 